Storymakers. I'm Angie Powers. I'm Elizabeth Stark. And, and this, this is Storymakers Story Show. And we are so thrilled to be here with Kai Milner, who is the author of The Golden Road, Notes on My Gentrification, a memoir from Penguin Press, which won the Barnes & Noble Emerging Authors Award and was a San Francisco Chronicle Book of the Year. Her short fiction has been published in Ziziva, Joyland, and recently, Best American Short Stories 2016, which was edited by Juno Diaz. Her nonfiction has been published in The New Inquiry, Michigan Quarterly Review, The Paris Review Daily, and many other places. She is a culture columnist at the San Francisco Chronicle. Welcome, Kai. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Yeah. So we're going to, we start with what we're working on this week, which <laughs> might be a little different from every other week because um, we're recording this on November 11th. So this is the week of the election. Just to say, we'll be it'll be released next week. Mm -hmm. For it, those of you who weren't aware, there was an election <laughs> this past well, week. Yeah, maybe. Boy, was there. Yeah, yeah, or something. Something. Something happened. Something happened. Uh, Angie, what are you working on? Uh, well, I am working on a variety of things. I'm finishing up my MA program, so I have some papers that I need to write uh, in advance of my final project for that. Which is a film. Which is a film. And I am also, you know, so digging into that script and getting a million crazy ideas for technological applications to addressing things like aggregating progressive action. So those are the things I'm doing this week. <laughs> like, maybe there's an app for this. Yes. Um, <laughs> which is actually, yeah, germane to Kai's uh, book. But, <laughs> but anyway... Um, I, funnily enough, like on election day, I went and sat down with a friend of mine who's really great at um, structure stuff. And, and of course, I've been working hard with Angie on my novel revision. And um, and my friend was like, it was like just, she was just starting to get really agitated. And um, I was still completely in oblivion uh, that anything might go awry. And, um, but in any case, she actually really helped me. And, and so somehow in the midst of all this craziness, I've sort of gotten clear on my next draft. <laughs> so now I'm sort of like rethinking all my ideas in terms of like fascism. Did it help you improve your antagonist? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but I did remind my students who are all really traumatized to kind of remember high stakes and, you know, these just these feelings because, um, because I think sometimes when we write, we are often in a kind of like a bubble of like you know ease and whatever and and it can be hard to it can plot can seem really melodramatic at times and and at other times it can seem understated and this is one of those latter times so in any case kai what are you working on this week well um just today i started working uh on a list with a group of local writers um uh mauro javier cardenas and a couple of other people were putting together a list um, of organizations um, that need writers and editors um, to volunteer, whether it's with low-income students or um, immigrants who need help with, you know, applications and uh, things like that. So we just started that a few hours ago. Wow. Um, 
sort of as a response, because everyone has these feelings at this moment, like, oh my gosh, I have to do something. So we're like, okay, well, let's start right here in the Bay Area with places that people can help. And um, I have also been working on my novel revisions. Um, and it's kind of funny because earlier this week, I was, I was saying to someone, I was like, oh, I'm having one of those moments, you know, where I'm like, is, is any of this worth it? And then Tuesday came and I was like, oh, right. Okay. It's definitely worth it. Let's get moving. So that's, <laughs> that has been kind of an activation, which has something to say for it. Can you talk more about that? Like, like how, I mean, I can obviously imagine or talk myself about it, but for you, how, how did sort of Tuesday's election and fallout um, make you feel more focused on art and creativity and writing story, whatever? Well, I think some of it had to do with the story I'm working on, which is, you know it, Elizabeth, because you've been helping me revise it, thank goodness. And it's about um, a girl, a, a half Native American girl, and who is traveling down the West Coast with her father, um, who went to prison for molesting her. And they are on this journey. Um, and it's all about the journey between the two of them as well. And uh, there are all kinds of things about it. You know, what do you do when you have the blood of the oppressor and the blood of the oppressed within you? What do you do about, you know, what does this say about this country? Um, a lot of things that seem to be relevant at the moment. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, it's hard to write novels. We all know this. And part of it is just because, you know, you're kind of like, I feel a bit useless. I don't feel particularly helpful to uh, a response uh, as a re being responding to everything I see that's going on around me. I don't necessarily feel like this is immediately helpful, but this is definitely a moment when I'm kind of like, okay, anything that brings warmth into people's lives and that um, provides people with some sense of understanding about who they are and what they're capable of is probably going to help. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Those are kind of, two, and are kind of two really different things because on the one hand, your novel is, is hard and, and challenging. Like it's on this edge that we're on right now. Right. And, and then there's the, the pleasure side of reading and of identifying with other characters and wondering what's going to happen that's comforting, right? Sort of, sort of both of those things. Right. Well, that's what we're all kind of aiming to achieve, right? You want to make people uncomfortable, but you also want to provide them with beauty and solace in, in that beauty. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, and then you're writing at the Chronicle and like a whole other uh, side, sort of in another way, right? You're, you're a, cultural columnist. Can you talk about that work and how that's being spun this week? Um, I mean, what do you do? Yeah, let's start out with a definition of your job. <laughs> okay. Well, so I, I have two jobs here, actually. Um, four days a week, I am on the editorial page. So I help to write the paper's unsigned opinions. Mm. And we were extremely busy during the election because um, we primarily focused on everything that was on the California ballot and there were, um, and the local ballot. And so between those two things, I'm sure you guys both got the ballot. It was like a doorstop this year. Yes. We did 80, we did 80 endorsements. We met with all kinds of people. Um, 
So that's a big part of my week doing that kind of stuff. And then one day a week I work on the column and it usually, it usually turns out that I'm doing something at least one night a week as well, because Mm -hmm. um, I try to go to events and and meet people and find out what's going on um, uh, in locally. And it's, I mean, it's an interesting exercise because essentially everything I write here is a first draft. Mm. And so I have to let go of perfection. I have to let go of a lot of things. Um, I'm not always, I'm not always thrilled with doing it, but on the other hand, you know, I do learn a lot about this is how you talk to people. This is how you find out what other people's lives are like. This is how you, figure out what details work. This is how you actually can see in real time and also um, from reader responses how, what people connect with. So uh, I feel like it's been very helpful to me in terms of I don't see writing as an academic exercise, mm-hmm. um, which I think maybe I could have if I had you know, gone to teach at a university or something. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have a PhD? Nope. Okay. Do you have an MFA? <laughs> nope. I have nothing. <laughs> I mean, good for you. Shall, you also don't have student loans then. <laughs> that was, that was definitely the thinking. Yeah. And it seems to panned out. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it's really interesting in terms of the differences. You cover a lot of genres you have work in short stories and your novels and journalism and and it's very interesting oh, to and, me. And, and the memoir, no. And the memoir. Do you call it a memoir? I do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I'm not. I'm not snobby about it. Yeah. And so you know, it's interesting to see the kind of day to day deadlines that you have for your regular job, and um, how that might shape your your own work ethic for um, longer projects. So, meaning, you know, you you separate it out, like, okay, these feel like very first draft things that you end up getting out for the paper sometimes when you have one day to write something or a very short window to get it done. Um, but how does it impact when you think about things getting out quickly versus that perfectionism piece? How do you, do you use tools from one or the other to kind of keep yourself from shutting down with perfectionism or to keep yourself... Uh, like going even when you don't have a deadline <laughs> even when you don't have a deadline um i mean that's a good question i would definitely say that i bring uh that it allows me to kind of compartmentalize you know i bring all of whatever ocd characteristics i have i, I bring that to the things that i'm working on outside of my job because i'm like oh here i can really channel all of those impulses to make everything as good as i can get it Um, and here I don't need to feel pressured and here I don't need to feel like, oh, I just have to finish this because it's been weighing on me for so long. I can say, okay, no, I'm going to live with these characters for as long as I need to live with them until I can get them right. Mm. Because it is frustrating sometimes just turning out copy. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, I, there is a, a real sense in which I've kept something pure, I guess, on the other side of my writing career. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, what I think journalism really has helped me do is, 
I mean, it's, it's so good to be able to meet other kinds of people constantly, constantly, because I don't, it, it helps me feel a little bit more confident in terms of telling stories and feeling like I can tell another person's story um, simply because I've, I have had a lot of experience talking to other people and trying to walk with them at least a short way. Yeah. Mm. I have um, students who are writing long, you know, book length nonfiction pieces where they are not a character or not a main, major character. So they're bringing in kind of a journalistic side into a more sustained creative work and kind of negotiating, like, what are you allowed to do? How much are you allowed to imagine? How much are you allowed to recreate? Do you, do you have to sort of negotiate that with the, with the journalism work? And do you have any tips about, you know, about that? Um, I'm not sure exactly. I mean, I, first of all, I love that they're making projects like that because even, even though I, I wrote a memoir, um, I do feel like there has been kind of a flood of everything has to be personal kinds of books and, uh, in nonfiction, definitely. Um, I don't feel like everything necessarily has to be personal. Mm. Um, so I do love that they're, that they're trying to do something else and that they're trying to tell stories in this other way. Uh, I mean, for nonfiction, the story only should be personal if the, if the person is really playing a part in it. So, (laughs) you know, if, if you're reporting on something, if you're reporting on oil rigging, but you're not an oil rigger and you've never been an oil rigger, but there's something about that world that is absolutely fascinating to you. Um, that is probably compelling enough that you don't need to put yourself in there unless you're like, I am going out on an oil rig for a year. And here's what I learned. <laughs> One of those books. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, I, I guess what I would say to them is to trust that impulse against the current market, because a lot of books right now, especially nonfiction books, you, the, the push is to make it more personal um, but the story doesn't always necessarily require that. Yeah. You really, you do go into other people's stories. I mean, they're definitely through the lens of, of the young you observing mm-hmm. them and so on. Right. But, but you, and you do a lot of, um, like in the memoir, you do a lot of, um, kind of long, like long kind of quote, quoting people, but not with quotation marks. Right. So these long passages that are. Right. I didn't, I didn't want to give off the, um, idea of complete accuracy yeah yeah but 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 yet you're kind of letting them have a voice right in the book too yeah right yeah yeah did you and did you feel like how how much were you kind of relying on memory and how much were you allowing yourself to to kind of create based on what you knew to be true I was doing both, and I would say that memory is you creating what you believe to be true. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, not using quotation marks was very much um, my my way of trying to embody that idea because, yeah, my memory is flawed. All of our memories are flawed. We are all making it up. Let's not pretend that this is fair and accurate and balanced 
Yeah. You said it began yeah. with a conversation, the memoir. You say in the acknowledgments that it began with a conversation, although it grew in a really different direction. Can you talk about that a little bit? Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh-oh, we don't want to go there. Uh-oh, I don't remember. Oh, <laughs> well, now I'm trying to remember which conversation particularly <laughs> you're like i'm going to talk about this conversation but none of it's in quotes it's so. yeah no, it says um the genesis of this book is a conversation i had with the great anthony walton although what oh. emerged is nothing like the idea he offered he was kind enough to calm me at many moments during the process <laughs> oh yes well that was a conversation that went over many years. Mm. Um, so Anthony Walton, and uh, if you don't know his wonderful book, Mississippi, um, it's absolutely worth reading. Um, and I met him when I was 17 years old. I was very fortunate to have him as a mentor very early on. And he said to me, he said, you know, you should write something about growing up black in Silicon Valley. And uh, I was like, oh, I don't know. It's not what I want to do, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, then as I got a bit older, I realized I was like, actually, if if I were, I should write a book that I would have liked to have read mm. um, at the time I had that conversation with, with Anthony Walton. Um, and uh, you're always writing the book that you wish existed in the world, right? You're always writing the book that you're like, I wish I could read this. Mm. So it, it did come out of his idea that this was a subject worth writing about. Um, I think I took it in a slightly different direction than he would have. Uh, but, you know, that's that that was that was the conversation. And it is an ongoing one. It's been an ongoing conversation. He's constantly telling me things that I am initially resistant to and that I then come around to in my own strange way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. Awesome. Um, so if you were to look at, uh, you know, because I was thinking about the short story, I read your short story that I guess was originally in Zizavai and was in the, I'm holding this up as though anyone's going to see this, but nobody will. <laughs> So, I don't know, we used to do something a little bit more visual. Anyway, this is the 2016 Best American Short Stories, edited by Juno Diaz. I just, just as an aside, did he, like, call you up? No! <laughs> this was the most amazing thing, right? So he he says something really lovely about, <laughs> about me and about my story in the, in the introduction, and I've never met him. I've never spoken to him. Um, I just got an email out of the blue from Heidi Pitlor, who is the uh, series editor there. And yeah. Because you always hear these stories about like people like Oprah calling people and then they never believe it's Oprah and they always think it's their, <laughs> their best friend or what you know what I mean. And yeah. then, so I like have, have, having these fantasies about like Gino Diaz calling you up and being like, I love your story. That would have been amazing. Yeah. Well, that, that would, would only have been how many phone calls, right? Yeah. Not so many. No, no phone so many. calls. But I mean, then I had to do like a bunch of frantic Googling, right? Like, okay, is this the email address? Is this real? Yeah. So I, I did kind of have one of those moments. Oh, good. I love that. The investigative journalist going, well, let me backtrack and make sure <laughs> yes. this is in fact accurate. Yeah, not sure an email scam for phishing scam. Yeah, right. for low self-esteem writers, <laughs> which I'm sure is like its own little niche. <laughs> for five hundred dollars, I'll tell you about what you've just won. But um, anyway, so 
you know, in his introduction, he talks a lot about the shape and the power of the short story. And then you also mentioned this is your first short story that got published. And so right. um, what had, what was your path to coming to the short story? And, um, and this short story and in this particular. short story in particular. <laughs> well, I, I always knew I wanted to write fiction. That was always the end game. So um, it took me a long time to get around to it. And then when I started, it took, uh, it's taken an even longer time to get it right. Because like I said, that goes back to this is where I'm OCD and this is where I want things to be perfect. A mere 18 um, drafts, if I read that correctly. Yes. <laughs> um, and that one in particular, it didn't come out of any one incident or any one episode. It's, it simply came out of having a number of female friends who were in the academy or were trying to be um, professors and kind of watching them over the years as they got their PhDs, as they went for postdocs, as they tried to find jobs, and just watching each and every one of them struggle in some extremely small but excruciating way that had something to do with their subjectivity and, and who they wanted to be. And realizing, okay, there's an experience here. There's something here that is fairly universal, which was one reason why the, um, the main character in that story doesn't have a name because she can really be a lot of other people. Um, and that, that was kind of how it came out of just watching friends over the course of a, a few years mm -hmm. and saying, Oh, this is, there's something going on here. Well, formerly it's interesting because there's, sort of a frame event of going to this meeting, but there's a lot of moving in time and you know, moving backwards and in these different moments. Did you do any pre-planning? Was this a completely organic uh, form that you came to just through writing the text and revising? I was thinking about Heart of Darkness and I was thinking particularly about, I kind of want to write a comic Heart of Darkness. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, still something, because this is, this is not as, as serious and as overwhelming as the subject of Heart of Darkness, which is the grand looting um, on a systemic scale of an entire continent. Yes. But it is, how do these, how, do, how does history live through us? How do, how does the person, how does the individual still have to deal with history on a small level, like this is a career that I'm interested in. So, uh, so the comedy because it's 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 much smaller, um, but still that that big idea, and that was kind of where the frame came from. So you have that initial frame, that story that is deeply connected to the interior story, but which is not the interior story. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh my, and the moment, I have to say, again, in the context of this week, especially just the moment when she meets up with the guy she went to grad school with, 
And he's like, oh, I'm working with like this incredibly <laughs> famous professor and he just thinks I'm ready to like submit this paper. And it's just like that moment of just like, there's nothing I can do to overcome this like built in bias, right? There's like nothing that like, there's nothing to do. There's no, you like, you can't be great and be smart and be, you know, <laughs> like, just the right. pain of that moment. And you kind of can't believe like <laughs> how you could do everything right. And, and, and you're still stuck in this system. And the wonderful awkwardness when he insults her around Bart's and, and is like, Right. Oh, anybody gets that. Right. <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. And of course, actually, nobody gets that unless you're in this extremely small and esoteric corner of the world. Right. <laughs> I know that was actually I was like, I didn't even know that people like thought Bart was like easy. Like, I didn't even know that world existed. <laughs> But yeah, that's why I was like, do you have a PhD? <laughs> it was that no, mistaken, no. you know, you wrote fiction about this character, so yeah. you must be her. That was that, you know, right. that, that erroneous but ever tempting <laughs> thought. But also because your memoir is, is kind of philosophical. <laughs> so I'm just, you know, I created a whole identity for you. <laughs> um, I have read a lot of philosophy, but again, I think that's where journalism helps because I'm kind of like, uh, I have to research this. I have to. I have to really put the work into this and to make this world come alive as, as much as I can. How do you do fiction, uh, research for fiction? Like, how do you specifically do that? Well, in the case of that particular story, I, I did talk to multiple people who had done PhDs in philosophy. Um, and I asked them, I was like, okay, here's the situation. Here's the conversation. Um, you know, I'm... I'm definitely going to use Barth because I've read him and I love him and I know that he's not considered to be uh, a pure philosopher. He's not considered to be a pure anything. He's, that's who he, he's, he's this wild kind of um, generalist. But what kinds of philosophers should I also be looking at given the subject matter? So it was something I knew a little bit about, but not enough where I could feel confident just kind of throwing things in. Mm -hmm. And they were like, okay, well, think about this person. Think about this person. Think about this person. So I did actually talk to people in the field. Um, and uh, I think it helped. Uh, I hope it helped. Well, I, yeah, I know. <laughs> I, you know, obviously enjoyed it. And it was interesting when looking at the notes in the back regarding your story, you also said that it really came together when you, when you found out how to sort of explain her love of her motivation, her motivation, right? What's the character's motivation? Right. But, you know, right. why is she there in the beginning? Right. So, and it's, it's, I think that really puts it sort of in this whole other, it's hard to imagine it without it. Right. But it's like the simplest craft <laughs> question. Right. And I got to it at the very end. I was like, the story is almost there, but why isn't it quite working? And it was like, Oh, well, gosh, because you didn't answer like, the most obvious, stupidest question, what is she doing here? Why does she want, what does she want? Mm, yeah. Yeah. So it was just interesting to also think about like that. In, and so um, how did you get to that question again? I'm sorry, you, you mentioned it in this book, but I can't, again, I can't remember. How, how did, it was the 18th draft. So. Well, the 18th, <laughs> yes, and on the 17th draft. Did you come to that yourself or did someone else kind of say, hey, have you thought about this? Or... No, I, it it did it did 
come to me myself. And I, I had a lot of people read the story, um, but unfortunately, no one quite picked up on that part. Mm, but I was kind of like, I, I did kind of know at the end, I was like, there's something, it's not quite there. There's something not quite there. And it was one of those things where I, I had put it away for a while and I was taking a walk or I was cooking or I was doing something else. And I was just like, oh gosh, that's it. It's so simple. You didn't answer this one question about her people are going to want to know why is she here do you think that do you think that brought well how do you think that impacted the emotion of the piece once you brought that piece in because i feel like it really does uh, i talked at the beginning you know i was thinking in terms of the structure about a comic heart of darkness Mm. and i think it really does make it a tragic comedy once you understand why she's here She's here because she loves this. She's here because she read an author in this subject who saw her. Mm -hmm. She could see herself in this person. Mm -hmm. And so now she is going into this institution to try and do this for other people. And she gets locked out because nobody else can see her the way that that author Mm -hmm. in the 17th century saw her. So that it, it was the, it was the detail that kind of unlocked the whole pivot point of yeah. of the structure and of the idea. I mean, I would agree. I feel like knowing that she loved it makes it so much more devastating that this is sort of where everything kind of ends up. Do you know what I mean? And um, so I just wanted to hear your sort of take on it because, you know, I think as a reader and a writer, we create something, there's something that happens between the two places. So I was just curious uh, you know, your feelings about that, about the feelings. Okay. I'm not making All right, sense. All right, so <laughs> I, have, I have a question. Feelings about feelings are the best feelings. Yeah. <laughs> I think Barbara Streisand sings about that. Um, so, um, so given that you write, essentially, five days a week for a living, mm. uh, how do you kind of, how, do, how and when and do you, keep yourself going with your own 18 drafts of of fiction and your own creative work or not that this isn't your own but your other creative work I mean it's it's definitely difficult sometimes I mean there are definitely nights when I come home and I'm pretty burned out and I want to do something else um but I really because I really have been able to separate the two um the two things and I've really been able to say this is one thing and this is another um uh, I don't feel like I'm necessarily doing the same thing just because I'm performing the same action Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. you know what I'm doing for every day here in terms of journalism it's a different it has a different audience it has a different impact in the world um it's a different it's a shorter game so the the weird fiction and the weird nonfiction is is a longer game. It's it's a different it's the same action, but it's it's there are two different intentions and there are two different audiences. Mm-hmm. And I always try and do something like completely unrelated before I sit down to write. So like I'm like, oh great, I'm gonna cook dinner. Go oh, great, yeah. I'm gonna go for a walk. Oh, great, I'm gonna do this other thing that has nothing to do with it. And any other ways you get back into the work? Do you reread? Where, do you know? Do you have specific goals? How do you how do you get back into your your outside the job creative work? Um, I usually do not have too much time to like set up 
tremendous rituals around getting back into it. Uh, but, if, but if I have an afternoon, then I will sit down and reread everything and be like, okay, how do, where's the thread that needs to be picked up? Mm-hmm. Oh my God, that's funny. I mean, that just sort of speaks also to the attitude about the work itself. You know, the, the work needs to get done and sometimes there is... A benefit to having a repetition, a ritual that this is what I do and this is what I do. And then I then you've kind of trained yourself to move quickly. But sometimes just the attitude of this is the work and that is is needs to get done. Like this is the little bit of time I have. And, and they, you don't really have the the ability to be precious about it because there are so many other things happening. And I just I love that approach to it because I think so many people have so many you know, other things maybe pulling on their time that they decide the thing to chuck is the work before they sit down and do it. So I really appreciate the, yeah, I I do this and this is what I do. Boom. You know, and I, well, and to be honest with you, I feel like I took a few years off from writing after I published my memoir. I had a really hard time getting back into it, getting back into the groove, getting back into the routine, finding the motivation finding, understanding the reason why I was doing this. Mm. And I think part of that was because I was being precious. It was because I was like, well, if the idea isn't big enough, if the, if the text isn't perfect, if it's not completely wonderful and alive, then I'm not going to do it. And I had to kind of let a lot of that go. And I just had to be like, okay, I'm just going to do a first draft and it's going to be bad. Okay, I'm just going to do a second draft and it's going to be bad. I'm going to do a third and a fourth and it's going to be bad. And eventually it will get better. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have to get through that process of things not being as perfect as I would like. So I had to stop being precious and just be like, if I'm going to be precious, I'm never going to get it done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Did you Had you sold the memoir um, before you finished writing it? You know what I mean? On like Yes. Yes, yes, we did. Yes, yes, we did. So maybe that helped too, like having a deadline, an external, I mean, you you know, you had an external deadline for the memoir. It did. It did. And I, I was also, I wasn't, I wasn't working at the Chronicle when I wrote it. I, I had a different kind of job set up. I had a lot more time than two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now I have less time, but actually more motivation and in some ways more productivity. Yeah. I think our relationship to time changes as we get older. <laughs> <laughs> It's not endless. <laughs> yeah. Um, any advice that you've been given or that you that you kind of hold carry with you about writing? Um, trust your obsessions, I guess, is what I would say. I mean, at a certain point, I realized, geez, I'm always writing about some idea of home mm-hmm. or some idea of trying to have power within a small setting and I was kind of like that's kind of weird you know shouldn't I be writing about I don't know these great big things shouldn't I be writing about you know racism in this super straightforward way or shouldn't I be writing about you know women taking over the world or shouldn't I be writing about uh, I don't know pick your poison right pick your big idea but then I was like nope nope Nope, it doesn't work if I'm not writing about something that I'm not extremely moved by. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then and it all turns out to be sort of a microcosm for the larger issues. It does. And plus, when you really look at the 
the work of authors, everyone's writing the same book over and over again. Yes. I think um, uh, Ann Patchett talks about that, right? Like pe- people trapped together in a room or something, a small yeah. thing is, her, is hers. <laughs> yeah. Well, it is time for our Steal This segment. T.S. Eliot said, amateur poets borrow, professional poets steal. Um, so we look at, at something we've come across in our readings or wanderings that we um, want to take and make our own. Shall I start? Please, will you model <laughs> that for us? Well, I'm actually working on a, on a class about backstory. Someone had asked me about backstory. And um, it's such an enormous topic, actually. I, I went in and was kind of fumbling around. But uh, one thing I noticed is that people do set up backstory in the very beginning because it's really they're setting up like the ordinary world of, of the characters. What is the most important thing for us to know about their these characters including their history and um you know and i looked at like gone girl and beloved and they both do this like they both have like a a kind of a built-in backstory but it but they both use setting as the way into that backstory they both um they're both kind of landing you in a place and then the place has a history and so in describing the place, they give you the history of the characters getting to the place. And so um, I don't know if I'm going to directly steal that, but I feel like that's quite a pairing there, <laughs> like to have the, both those books operating that way. So I'm definitely going to kind of keep investigating this. And, and, um, and you know, I, I, there's just a lot of prohibitions against backstory, right? Like Donald Moss says, you know, cut it and move it all to chapter 50. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, um, and it's like, well, is that true? And I think what's true is like, don't put in the parts of the story that don't belong in the story. Th- that's the the useless backstory. Um, but the parts of the story that build up the things you have to know about this world, the things that are going to be challenged and changed, those things belong. So that's, that's what I'm going to try to steal. Fantastic. <laughs> Angie. Um, you know, I've just been reading a a lot about decision fatigue and actually about sort of how to learn things quickly because <laughs> I'm that kind of person. And um, the thing that I'm going to take away this week is really how do I just create uh, sort of a check, not, I guess like a checklist. So, um, you know, we were talking earlier about just getting to the work. And sometimes for me, because of the way my brain works, if I don't know what I'm doing, I will just spin. And so finding uh, frameworks that for me will just give me like, turn on the computer, read the last paragraph or <laughs> check out your outline or whatever, but making a clear set workflow process that I don't have to think about or decide that this is what I'm going to do. So that's what I'm going to try on moving forward because I'm really behind in NaNoWriMo. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> She's like promised our students. I'm I know. I have to get like, 50,000 words by uh, the 23rd. Really wow. Good. And um, I am going to, well, because we're leaving on the 24th and I don't know how my internet access is going to be. And then, so I have to finish that. And I've, I've written about a quarter of that. So. Really? Yeah. Wow. So I need to just keep hopping on it but for me i do know that having like it's like start here start here start here just really helps me like i don't have to think like (laughs) i will get whatever it is i need to be able to continue but i don't have to think about 
how I figure out how to continue each time I sit down. That's great. So <laughs> how about you, Kai? Anything you've come across that you want to take and make your own? Um, well, so I've been reading this wonderful book by Gail Jones, who was um, a protege of Toni Morrison in the 70s. She's this wonderful author who um, her work has not, is not read that much right now, but I do think she'll have another renaissance. And she wrote this book called Corrigidora. Um, and it's amazing because so much of it is stream of consciousness, which is a technique that is so hard to do and is frankly kind of embarrassing for the writer, I think. I mean, when I was reading it, I was like, oh my gosh, I haven't even read anything like this since I was in college. This is so difficult. It's kind of embarrassing because you've got to put in all of these weird ticks that as an author, you're constantly asking yourself, oh my God, can I really do this? But it totally works. And I'm kind of like, okay, I should maybe try and do some part of writing that I feel is kind of embarrassing. Ooh, I love that. (laughs) Nice. I love that. Yeah, I want to hear about how that goes. (laughs) (laughs) I want to hear about that in a really public way. About how what you did that was embarrassing when. Here's this part of my book that is super embarrassing to me. But then, of course, that's always what people connect to, to also, right? Because it's so human and we all are always, and it's the part we're hiding that, you know, that nobody talks about. I mean. Right. And it's also, you know, you want to talk about stakes. You want to talk about taking risks. It's kind of like, it's also what we're here to do. So risk embarrassing Mm -hmm. ourselves. Yeah, it's a good, right. It's, it's a good way to make sure you're doing it. (laughs) You're not just willing to do it. You're going to make, actually, that reminds me of a writing exercise of like, try to write badly, not just sort of let yourself be, it's a shitty first draft, but actually try to write badly. It's the most freeing thing I've ever done. Oh, wow. For breaking through all that fear. Wow. I I would probably try and write about sex because that's how you write badly yeah. right like yeah write about the sexual act <laughs> and like pull out all the cliche and you know be really on the nose whatever the things are that you're afraid of right you just like go for it and one is that, of course a lot of the things we're afraid of are kind of authentic in a certain way and then you i don't know you just surpri- it's surprising it's very interesting <laughs> yeah that's a good wow one. maybe i'll try that good exercise so kai t- uh can you tell people where they can uh find and fan you <laughs> Um, well, Best American Short Stories is pretty much in every local bookstore, and that was that is definitely the first place I would urge you to look. <laughs> um, and then, of course, the memoir, you are probably more likely to find it on the usual uh, large outlets like barnesandnoble.com and amazon.com, and possibly your local library if you're in the Bay Area. Do you have a, a website that you are using? I do. It is www.kaimilner.com and it's C-A-I-L-L-E-M-I-L-L-N-E-R.com. And we will also link to all of that and other things we've talked about in the show notes at storymakersshow.com. And to remind everybody, you can subscribe to Storymakers Show on iTunes or Stitcher. We would love for you to review us. It helps people find us. It helps us find people. And um, this week that the podcast is coming out is Friends Week in the book writing world. So if you happen to listen to this first thing in the morning on Thursday, you can run over to bookwritingworld.com backslash friends 
week and sign up and come visit me. <laughs> but yeah. uh, otherwise, you know, sign up and get on the next round. I do free classes at Recorder. So, all right. Well, thank, thank you. you so much. It was so fun talking. Yay! Appreciate it. Yeah.